Hello and welcome to the podcast. It is wonderful to have you with us. We have had the incredible pleasure, delight and provocation Mm -hmm. of three authors coming in in the first three episodes of our pod. And so what we're going to get to do is reflect on those authors together. So Zaid Hassan, Cindy Suarez and Richard Beard have all made wonderful appearances with us, uh, dived deep into conversation with us, uh, provoked us to think differently and and collectively, I think, given us various different angles into Mm -hmm. Mm. one into privilege two into the scale and scope of the work that we're trying to do actually not just scale and scope but depth of the work that Mm -hmm. is needed in the world right now so this is really Tuesday and I's opportunity to kind of reflect and make sense of the kind of three authors before we move into the next series of the podcast Yeah, we met with three really big brains. Big brain. Big brain, people. I was like, <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. I'm like, whoa, all of them were so smart. I'm so thrilled that they were willing to talk with us and so different. Yeah. Which, you know, I think it just as a as a reflection for myself, like the reflection I need after talking with these three big brains and realizing how different they were is how the variety of brilliance in the world. Mm. You know, like sometimes like you just feel like you need to like conform somehow or like express in some way or be a certain way. And these folks could not have been more different from each other, I don't think. Well, not, you know, when you say that, and it's also the variety of brilliance working for the common good. Mm-hmm. Like these are outrageously brilliant people who have chosen to leverage all of their kind of like brilliance and humanity and expertise and learning for the common good. And that's just not what we see on the news, is it? You know, we just see like such a fucking roller deck of complete tossers out there making mistakes again and again and again and again, again, don't we? Yes. So if you want an alternative view on what's actually happening in the world, tune into the Find the Outside podcast and you get to meet people who are really getting positive things done or building an analysis that is helpful for those of us who are also getting positive things done, right? Yeah, I feel the same way. And I I feel this way about our work generally. Tim, I feel like there are moments when I feel despair, without a doubt, right? 15,000 Iranians are about to be executed, right? For civil unrest. Like that truly was... Like, I just had to sit with that for a while and just be like, how do I like metabolize this reality in the world? And and is there anything I can do? So it's not that I never feel despair, but I very rarely feel despair. And I, I swear it is because of our work. I feel like we get to be with people. Sometimes they're getting clobbered and sometimes they're losing, but they're at least making an effort to make the world better. And then we talk with these smart people who have power and influence, all three of them in very different ways, different levels of privilege, but they all have some power and influence for real and they're working to make the world better. And so it's, it's like, I feel like my daily life is working with these kind of folks. Hmm. And then if I, open up to the news or whatever, I get a very different picture. But I often want to ask people, like people who aren't in our line of work, what are you actually experiencing daily, right? What are, What is humanity teaching you about itself daily, about the direction that we're going? And some, it might be not awesome. I'm thinking, you know, my ex-husband just is leaving a job at a bank because he's like, truly, it's a terrible way to be in the world working for a bank, you know, like, so I know that some people do have the same experience, but I'm, or, the, or a hard experience, but I really wonder 
if we could somehow get together and share the stories that are actually happening, not like just share the good news or like good things that are happening, but actually share what's what's real in our lives. If we'd had a if we'd have a very different sense of what's actually happening, that might free up some of our energy to work on some of our toughest issues, right? I know I've said this a billion times on this podcast, but like, you know, one of the first things Mr. Tolkamuller ever said to me was keep good company. Mm. And it was very good advice to me at the time because I wasn't. And, and, uh, and it's like, oh, like, you've never said that part of it. Well, keep good company. You know, it's like, look, make sure who's around you. What's the narrative you're building around you? What's the story you're building around you? Actually, Jen, who works with us, her daughter came in and interviewed me. She's seven years old. She interviewed me for school because she had to like interview somebody who's done something in the community. And I've started this soccer club. So she, which was great. And so there were two pieces of advice, you know, my two pieces of advice were follow your heart and keep good company, mm. you know? And I think that's, I think that piece of like, we you know what, what are you putting in your ears? What are you yeah. watching? Who are you listening to? What is the company you're keeping? Not to, not to bury our heads in the sand. Is it the ostrich that does that? Ostrich would bury their heads yeah. in the sand, right? It's not, not to be the ostrich, but to, but, um, but actually to feel like you're part of a momentum. You know, right? And uh, and I think that was one of the most remarkable things for me as a young man as well. Like the first meeting of from the four directions, as it was called, where Meg and Tolka and Bob Stilger and those people all brought us into a room, and there were people from thirty-two different countries. And I suddenly realised I was part of a global movement. This wasn't just mm. me. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, I'm not just like some lonely, cra- lonely, crazy nut job. Wow, I'm actually part of a global movement. All these people are thinking like me and trying to lead like me, mm-hmm. but it's 30, 32 different countries and they're all of a similar age group to me too. And I was like, whoa, there's actually something happening in the world. So I think all three of these authors do that. And I think maybe that's the role of authors in some mm. ways right now, you know, is to like put these messages out, to illuminate these stories, to bring fresh analysis that actually allow us not to buy into so much of the narrative we're sold day to day, moment to moment on so many of the feeds we're all part of, you know? Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I was trying to find um, a through thread beyond kind of these are folks doing good work in the world and they're really brilliant. I was trying to find a through thread to these three authors and I was interested and would love to chat with you a little bit about these folks seem to have varying levels of privilege Mm. and varying levels of relationship to that privilege, Mm. right? And so I was just really, really interested. I mean, you know, I think that both Cindy and Richard, Cindy Suarez, who wrote the Power Manual, who comes from a real lack of privilege, right? And, but, but then writes about privilege and justice every day in her work, right? And and now has real access to power and influence as the leader of nonprofit quarterly, right? Who's like just like making waves acro- at least across North America in big waves. And then we have Richard Beard kind of on the other end, kind of born to great privilege. Well, his he actually came from a working class family, oh. right? His dad was a builder after right. World War II, right? And uh, and and after World War II there was a massive building boom, so they, you know, his dad was part of that building boom and he was like the way to accelerate our family into the next class was to send the children to these these uh, right. independent schools, these private schools what in England are often called public schools. And so his was like a his was a story of like, you know, generated wealth from his father. And then this leap, this kind of attempt to right. kind of like leap into the next class strata in the UK, whereas Zaid came from incredible privilege. Mm-hmm. And Richard Beard turns around and like casts his gaze 
on this place that he's landed. Mm. Right? Yeah. Not quite what my dad expected. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's so interesting. So, because I'd lo- I love you because you know Zaid more, but my experience is Cindy was kind of born without any, developed an analysis right? Mm. And a movement towards justice, and then brought that that lens into all of her writing. Richard Beard, not born into it, ascended and then turned his gaze, right? In a more personal way, not a systemic way, but a personal way into looking at privilege. Zaid, born into privilege. And how would you describe his relationship? Yeah, I mean, and I think Zaid is someone, I mean, I've known Zaid since my early 20s, but like how, and, and pretty well, I would say, in periods of my life, you know, but like how deeply I know him is another question. I mean, mm. I, don't, I don't know him intimately, even though I've known him a long time and would consider him a friend. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would say that Zaid is an incredibly bright dude who has followed his line of thought to the conclusion that he's reached. Do you know what I mean? Well, if this, then this, then this, he's like, that's fucked. Yeah. No, Yeah. that cannot be the outcome. Wait a minute. Can we, you know, he's just so like, he's just. Yeah, totally. Do, do you know what I mean? Like he's just, he's just grown up with this incredible gift and he's been, and his intelligence has like reached conclusions and they're like, he's like, that is just, we, we no. We have to do something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, my experience of him is he's always so incredulous mm. that the outcome of our behavior is this in the face of this evidence. Yeah, that's great. That's great because it because what you're describing is a different orientation toward power, privilege, justice. Which I don't mm. know. I think he might have used the word power. He might have used the word privilege, but it is it it's a different felt orientation. Definitely. No lack of, I don't want that to be happening in the world, right? Like he's no. doing good work and he's, you know, like he, you know, he, he's, he's fighting the good fight, but his orientation is quite different. And I think you're right. It is like a, this doesn't make any sense kind of orientation. Like, yeah, w- why would we end here? That doesn't work for people. And of course I want things to work for people. Right. So it's quite logical and interesting. And I think that part of why I wanted to bring that one is, Cindy is like justice systems that, you know, Richard Beard is personal transformation. Zaid brings this kind of logic based thinking around issues of power and equity. And, and I guess I want to say like all of that's needed. And we say that all the time. We say that all of that's needed all the time. And yet we tend to think one is better than the other or, or value one. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, this kind of stew of three authors to me was like a great, um, mash of many different ways to go about making the kind of change we want to see in the world, but really different with, from very different vantage points. I also want to say Zaid in some circles is the only person I ever, or I have seen like asking some of the critical questions around race and class and wealth. Yeah. And certainly at that level of kind of like academic stature and, you know, very much so. Yeah. I've just been re-listening to the Richard Beard podcast just for oh, myself, okay. just to tune, tune back into it, you know. And uh, and I think one of the things that struck me from that, and I, I wonder how you might translate that across the three as well, was his like these kind of like he had this really great analysis, mm-hmm. but you know. But when we started asking, well, what do we do with that? He's like, I don't fucking know, man. It's so entrenched. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he was like, but attack won't work. Yes. Oh. So good. So if you if your if your solution is to attack power to try and get it, he's like, that's never going to work. These people know how to survive attack. Like you need a different strategy. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
I'm not sure any of the three of them actually said this is like, it's just like, there's no obvious answer right now. Like no, <laughs> no matter how bright you are, no matter your position of power, no matter your background, it's not like there's like some sweet, clear way. None of these authors were like, well, here's what you do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, they sure weren't. And and so like that has two, it raises two things for me. One is, and I think we have found this over and over, sometimes our best thinkers, and you know, we interviewed Bio Akamalafe as well. Right. Sometimes our best thinkers, their role is actually not to say how to put it in practice. Their role is to like open the door to more understanding and then practitioners figure out the practice. Right. And so I just like kind of really thinking about that in my life, like what do we look to people for? You don't have to do all of the things, but there is a gift of like shining the light on something or opening a door to new understanding and saying, look here, and then people figure out what to do. That's been the role of um, authors and thinkers and speakers in my life for sure. You know, I mean, like, you know, if I think about Augusto Boal and reading his work, if I even think about theatre practitioners like Bertolt Brecht, just, you know, people who I've read who has made me be like, oh, I want to do things differently. Right. It's given me a different window in. And also that bloke who wrote The Empty Space, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Anyway, when I'm looking at my bookshelf, you know, Margaret Wheatley. But these authors who've just been like, what? You know, and even some of the more kind of like Cahill Gibran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm type of writers, you know, Rumi, like some of the poets, but, but these, but these people, you know, but I, what I liked about Meg Wheatley, for example, in my life was she gave me a theory to test. Yeah. 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 Like she was like, well, here's living systems theory. What if we tried this mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of a mechanistic linear approach to problem solving, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot more. That feels like a lot more kind of Tim style. Let's try that, you know? And, and, um, yeah. So I think there is a huge piece of that. I think there is a huge piece of like shining a light onto something. And then the people who are actually getting on with it on the ground or in their communities or in their organizations get to go test that out. Right. You know, I love that. I love that. It feels like, um, it feels like both liberation for the author to just go, go think and, and articulate and also liberation for the practitioner. You don't have to be like, so tied to what the author said, right? They're just, they're just shining a light. They're just opening a door. You got to walk through it, yeah. right? You got to figure out what it means in your life, right? Which is of course, very much the community we're in, right? Our, the art of hosting community that we both kind of came from, which is like, try it out. Yeah. Try it out. Yeah. It's a Peter, Peter Brook, the empty space was that theater practitioner. Ah, I would say I've never even heard of it. Okay. Yeah. So, incredible, incredible, incredible stuff. Antonin Artaud was another one, the theater mm. in its double. But like, these were things I read when I was a teenager that I was like, well, I can see the world completely differently. Mm-hmm. What if I did things that way, you know, and the same thing with kind of Meg, even Peter Senge to some extent. And uh, anyway, so I, I think that's, I think that's really true. This kind of like awakening that can, that can take place from these type of folks, but, but uh, I don't know what you found, but like, I, I found certainly with the three speakers we have and, and the books that most inspire me, they very rarely are like how to guides. Like they, they tend to be more like conceptual or principle based or, um, yeah, yeah. You know, the power manual maybe, you know, but I, I but I, but if I think about the things that, you, you know, if I think about 
how I started the soccer club here in my home bay. It's like absolutely influenced by the theory of change we've been developing at the outside, by what's been going on in the art of hosting community, by what you know, by my readings from Meg, by what by what Mariana Kunut has done in Zimbabwe. By I mean, it's just like it, it's all of these things have fed in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm always very suspicious of a how-to. Right. It's just kind. Of, you know what I mean? I just like I and. And so even if it's offered in that way, I'm like, well, how do I make it my own? Mm. How would I do that? Mm. How does it work on the ground for me? And I really, really like that. And I think Zaid really brought a level of figure it out. You know what I mean? Like I can give you some guidelines, but like you got to figure it out. Like I felt like he talked about that kind of over and over with folks like, well, that doesn't work. That didn't work for our team. So what are we going to do now? Right? Kind of that idea of like, it's almost like um, we don't know what to do, but a confidence that we can figure it out. And also like a reliance on figuring it out over theory, right? I didn't feel like any of our authors were so convinced of their own theory, which might've been the earlier point you were making, so convinced of their own theory that they knew exactly how to tell us what to do. Provided something useful, provided a good lens, now go figure it out. Do you, do you think we can figure it out? I mean, not genuinely. Like, like looking at the level and scale and multi-layered nature of the emergencies that we're facing right now in the world, do you know? Listening to speakers like the three we had on, or the reading that you're doing in your life, do you do you genuinely feel hopefulness that we can figure it out? I don't think so. If two probably completely different answers, one is <laughs> is I do trust the groups we work with to like figure out their next step. Hmm. I do. So like, there's something about figure out like direction, where to go next, how to be together, how to put your foot next and keep in company with people and learn. I trust that. I am not clear that the crisis that we're facing will be figure outable. I think it might require something entirely different. Uh, And I don't know what that is, but I'm not sure it's going to be good thinking. Yeah, you know, admit you, what you said, the one liner that came into my head, which is often the way in it, was like, we're, like, we're almost certainly not going to fix it, but we might be able to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> like, great. Like, it's not going to get less broken. It's not going to get less confusing. It's not going to get less chaotic. But we may, if we turn to each other, you know, be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right, like how to navigate how to how to navigate all this that's happening around us, you know. But of course, the great danger is not turning to each other. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that feels almost like the question of our time, right? Will we actually, as a species, be able to turn to each other, or will we continue like these things that keep us separated and keep you know us hurting and harming each other? Yeah, yeah. It's so crazy to see all these different votes going through and not just in um, the US, but also in Europe as well, where it's still so like people are winning by such tiny margins, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the, the one, the one Senator or like the 3% of the vote or the, like, it's, it's so like, there's like, they, they, they just, there's not a, mo- there's not, there's not like a general movement. It's so like polarized anyway. Okay. But Yes. I think that that's true. But I think maybe just coming out of the US elections, which were slated to go far worse than they did, right? The 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 red the red tsunami became a red ripple. A red little ripple, maybe even trickle, right? Trickle. 
So I do, I can feel a movement, Mm. but I want to ask you, poet, storyteller, (laughs) like, isn't this how it is, right? Like, isn't it, aren't we in a mythic battle, right? That isn't like, oh my gosh, the the good is so good. It's just obviously easily going to over Trump bad, yeah. right? Like it doesn't make a, that's not a good story. That's not a good narrative. It's not actually maybe how human beings are. Maybe yeah. talk to me, poet and storyteller about like, what is the setup that we're by one, one person, one Senator that feels dramatic. Yeah. I, whenever my kids watch Star Wars, I'm always like, you know, it's, the light side and the dark side of the force, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a great big fucking gray area in the middle, <laughs> kid. <laughs> Just want you all to know that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, I know it makes it for a good story, but like, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, the mythology is the underworld, right? Like you're in, we're in the underworld, mm-hmm. which is the place mm-hmm. where you engage with all of your demons and you face yourself and you get forged you know, and you meet some of your strongest helpers and then you eventually climb out the other side up a well or whatever it is, you know? So, yeah. So there's no doubt. I mean, all of our theories of change tell us that too, you know, like Mm -hmm. you expand to a point where you can no longer bear expansion anymore and then chaos strikes and it is in all of that chaos, you know, out the other side of it there begins to be some convergence and some clarity. So that's how stories get told in some way. It's like, it's like the music I love the most that, you know, it's just not the same all the way through. It's got something that happens in the middle that rewrites the song and then it comes out the other side a little different. And so, yeah, like when you take the million foot view and you look down on the evolution of what's going on right now, it's like, yeah, all right. So the planet's going through a period of major chaos. And like, no one quite knows what's going to happen on the other side, but there is another side, you know, it's highly likely humans will survive it. How many? In what shape? Right, yeah. On what continent? I think all of that's up for grabs. And what the technologies and methodologies are that they discover that enable them to get through to the other side of whatever this is. I think we're still figuring that out as well at the moment, you know? But I do feel very clear that it's not mechanistic, you know? I mean, yeah. Like the, yeah. when I was working with these senior climate scientists down in Colorado and, you know, and they were just like laughing at the idea that you could create machines that would absorb carbon. They're just like, that is just the most, re- they're like, mm. you'd need to build a machine as big as the planet for it to have any fucking impact. You know, like these machine ideas, they, 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 we actually need a completely different mindset to get through to the other side. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just occurs to me that like in, in some ways, probably, I don't know, maybe actually, yes, like many, many of our spiritual stories talk about a cataclysmic flood or, but like I'm just saying, maybe humanity hasn't been through this, but it occurs to me that different groups of humanity have had different apocalypses, right? Right. And what comes forward from that are, are stories, right? And songs and like, like, it's like almost like, I just feel like we're at a time where like, we need to look to those things rather than machines, like to, to learn from the people who've been through it for how we could get through this or how, how we could be thinking. God, there was something I wrote years ago, which was like, um, we can't fake it. Not everyone will make it. There's no hiding from this colliding with the end of an era. It's never been clearer. Some will get left behind their remains to find in millions of years as we discover again our evolution from homo confusion to homo luminum. Oh, 
look at you. Look how smart you were. Years and years ago. That was years ago I wrote that. But like, that's it. You know, it's like, it's like, that's part of the bigger picture of it. Yeah. And then there's just the day-to-day of living, isn't there? There's the, like, like we were saying, you know, you, there's the, all right, well, I'm going to fix up my soccer field so kids can play soccer and I'm going to turn up in these spaces and host the conversations that matter. And I'm going to do my best to prepare my kids for an increasingly uncertain world. And I'm going to. Right. Right. And I just feel like that, I mean, it just to, if I would bring it back to our three people, so they're just doing what they need to do. Yeah. Right. In the face of this uncertainty, not hiding from it. I really appreciated Cindy through part of her podcast talked uh, about, I, I don't think she used this word, but I would use them kind of some of her protective practices. Right. Oh yeah. That was cool. Wasn't it? Right. Like the way that she kind of protects her thinking, her way of going through the world, her way of just creating the new without being bogged down by all of these heavy things that are always happening, right? She talked about like stopping listening to the news or, you know, the, 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 the mantra she says to herself Oh yeah, to kind of keep on, on her particular course, right? And I thought that was really, really interesting that there might be, and I think you picked up on it right away. I, I don't know, or maybe you picked up on a later conversation. There is a level of protection of the self that's needed in these times too. It's, you know, or there could be. No, I find that all the time in my life. There's no shortage of need, you know, like how difficult is it to stay awake? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I hadn't read that news story about 15,000 Iranians oh. about to be executed. I'm going to go look it up after, them. but like to breathe that in, mm-hmm. to stay awake and not to not turn away from it, but also not get lost in it. Right. And maybe that's the role of authors like Zayed, you know, like the social labs revolution and the, the work he's been doing or from whatever angle you come in, what, what they're doing is helping you find a way just to take the next step, helping your brain have a way to make sense of what's going on, to not feel overwhelmed, to, you know. I want to ask you, and I'm sure I asked you this again, or maybe even during that podcast in our like, you know, our little front line, but I was... I'm so interested because you had talked about Richard Beard's book. You know, it was a book that, you know, and I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I read it, right? Because you were kind of so like about it. Thank you. That's so nice of you to read it, you know. And uh, well, also I try to read the authors we're interviewing too. Like that feels respectful and good. But, <laughs> uh, but Seems like but, a reasonable thing to do as a podcast host to at least read a text before they come on. Exactly. So, but I was curious what that was like for you. If there's anything for you, that attack line was so powerful to me when he talked about not attacking was so powerful. I thought that is the nugget I'm going to take. So his, I, I took a bunch from that and I'm listening to it again and but one of the things I found fascinating was that he was behaving in the way he was describing. I don't know if Richard's going to listen to this, but like maybe he is. And sorry if you are, Richard. But like, you know, but his ability to deflect away from a conversation about him personally. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening back to the pod and he really did a successful job of not telling us about him personally. Mm. At all, you know, despite some very direct questions. And he'd be like, so Tim what do you think about that? You know, or he'd be like, actually, I'm just going to go back to Tuesday's question from earlier. And of course that's part of the training. You know, that's part of the training in these schools is to be able to deflect away from that and not go into those kind of like deeply personal spaces and those deeply personal uh, conversations because they feel incredibly vulnerable because in the kind of schools and class we come from, they would have been leveraged to harm you, you know? And so I think that's one of the things I found most fascinating was that, you know, he was talking about 
something, having an analysis about something, but also exhibiting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then it just, as I'm sure I do all the time. Oh, it was fascinating to be with the, on with the two of you. You know, as I'm sure I do all the time. You well, know. I don't know that you do that. Yeah. I mean, I think you can do that, but I don't think that's your MO. I don't think your MO is not to be vulnerable. No, but I'm sure I exhibit other behaviors that are a result of my class and my upbringing and my education. You know, as I talk about them, I'm sure, you know, I mean, I think all of us do. Like we're, you know, that ridiculous old adage that, we, you know, we, you teach best what you most need to learn. I mean, I think there's something in that, like the areas that we're most curious about in our lives and we generate the most learning and knowledge about are often the areas where we need to grow the most and therefore we're the least proficient. So we're simultaneously becoming articulate and strong and practice rooted in an area that actually we're quite nascent in, you know? And so I think that's one of the wonderful, you know, so I was just, I could see that in Richard when we were meeting with him, you know? That's one of the things I took away listening to it again, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good insight in there and reflection. I've sent, actually sent it to friends of mine mm. to listen to my mate, Gary and Carl. I sent it off to, because we've been talking about this stuff since our mid twenties, right? Your old mates. And, and I was like, lads, have a listen to this. Like, uh, I think it really kind of feeds off the conversations we've been having for a couple of decades and I'd love your thoughts on it. And Well, I've, I mean, again, two different thoughts. One is that I think that you're right. The thing that we're most interested in is often the thing we need to work on. But I also think it can be the place where we have the most proficiency so we can really see where we need to work on it. So I think there's some things I just like, I feel like, uh, I, I just feel like you've done a lot, a lot of work in that area. And I feel like, so you know how to push yourself when you're not going there. But I was curious, like I found the, I found the whole thing fascinating. I just kind of like... <laughs> I, I mean, if you <laughs> podcasters, if you can see my face, I want to go back and listen to it now hearing Tim's uh, sense of it. But I remember exactly where I was. I was in a hotel room in Montana and I was like, well, this is fascinating being on with these two men. And not, uh, a, not a conversation you'd normally be in in your life, no, right? No, no, two no. Two privately educated British boys talking about privilege from their perspective of having gone through the system. Right? Yeah. Super interesting. Totally. And like, and, and, but I do remember, I do, I, I, I remember like thinking like, well, they're just doing a whole kind of dance. I don't really understand how to do, but like, and, but I could feel because I could feel like you asking some pointed questions and a little bit of deflecting, but also a little bit coming back at you. And I was like, oh my gosh, these dudes are just in a dance. And I just like, totally almost like get the popcorn. Let me watch this. (laughs) Um, But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed him a lot. I enjoyed the interview a lot. I thought he, he brought some good stuff. Um, I am. Yeah. I mean, I am so grateful for the authors who are out there writing in this field mm -hmm. because it's, I mean, as you know, I think it's such a missed part of our analysis on how we get change done. And especially from the kind of, kind of the lens of British culture, which has been so informative of the education and upbringing of people of um, uh, wealth and upper classes or ruling classes in other countries all over the world. So it's just, you know, by understanding the British culture, I think we are getting insights into the education of people in other countries, especially countries that have experienced colonization under British rule. So I think it's, uh, which is so many countries in the world. So, so I do think, um, I do think it's incredibly valuable. I do think it's incredibly valuable, you know? Yeah, I just, I, I really enjoyed this author series just because they, they, all three of them were so provocative for me, mm. but from such different vantage points. I was just like, every time I was like, boom, mind blown. Okay. Wow. Like there's just, 
so many ways to understand the world and to then go to work on what you understand for the good. Yeah. That's kind of one of just, I think one of my main takeaways. I mean, I just thought uh, Cindy was, this time was more personal than our last interview with her. Yeah, it was, hey. It was. Yeah. So that was like really amazing to get, get a sense of like how she's navigating in some ways kind of blowing up in the world, right? Like she's getting NPQ and she are getting more offers than they can handle. And and yet she's like not compromising on her vision, even a millimeter. And she's still a person and a mom that has to have these practices. And do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I loved her talking about, um, the experience of black leaders who are put into positions of power mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they're inheriting from incompetent white leaders just before them and then expected to fix it. And just like how she was able to articulate, I mean, you and I have been reading about that and we're encountering that in places we're working, but because it's, you know, she was like, it's such a common discourse for her, I think mm-hmm. in MPQ and, and for her to be able to really articulate that from the, for, as a direct experience, it was just like, Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's just a view that, of course, I don't have. Mm Hmm. You know. Yeah. So it was fun. Uh, you know, on the on on that on that piece about you know you you teach best what you most need to learn and all of that. I I failed my driving test seven times. (gasps) Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. But I do consider myself one of the best trained drivers on the road. As a result. I don't See? know this about you. We've been friends a long time. I don't know this about you. Like, wait, did you hit things? What? Like, how could you fail seven times? I can't even remember. I just, you know, I just, to be honest, I think I was driving around without a license for quite a long time. So I just didn't give a shit about whether I passed or not. I mean, that's awful. Got it. Is this a public podcast? I don't know if this is, this doesn't, we might have to edit that bit out. But you can't get in trouble now. You like have legitimately gotten your driver's license. Now. I do. Yeah. No, I have a driver's license. I'm no longer 20, whatever I was or 18, whatever I was. It took me seven times to pass. So I did pass in the end. Well, see, there you go. And like you said, now you're well-trained. Nigel Mansell, one of the greatest ever British Formula One drivers, took him six times. No. What is the test like? It's very difficult because like compared to the test over here. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's like, you have to, re- you have to do reverse parking. You have to do hill starts. Like you have to go, you know what I mean? It's like, okay. It's a different, it's a different test, but still most people don't take seven times. Let's be honest. We had to do reverse parking here. I don't know if they still do. It's called maneuverability and I totally failed it. Three. Yeah. Parallel parking, three point turns, hill oh. starts. You have to, you used to have to learn on a, you couldn't, you can't manual. do any of your, yeah, you have to learn on a manual. You can't do any of your driving on automatics. Wow. That, that's, that's for real. Yeah, it was fun. That's for real. I mean, all seven times. <laughs> I was going to say it was seven times of fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mum and dad, I think mum and dad were like, look, we're just going to stop paying for these. You're going to have to start paying for these yourself. Because <laughs> they were like, yeah, we'll pay for you to get your driving test. You know, yeah, yeah, of little course. did they fucking know. No, anyway. That's hilarious. All right. Okay, friend. Thank you, listeners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take care. Cheers. Yeah, you too. Cheers, friends. Bye-bye.